I'll be reading uh, Acts 17, verses uh, 1 through 10. It'll be from the RSV, so not quite the same version as you have in your bulletin. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and for three weeks he argued with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked fellows of the rabble, they gathered a crowd, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, saying, crying, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard this. And when they had taken security from Jason and the rest and had let them go, they let them go. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away to Berea by night. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing. But Christ, uh, Paul told us that I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And so today, we pray you'd strengthen us to hear you. We've already dined with you. We've already been welcomed into your palace. And now, speak to us to send us out to transform the world for thy name's sake. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Я приглашаю вас приветствие из Пресвитерианской Реформатской Церкви Бившего Советского Союза. I bring you greetings from the Reformed Presbyterian Churches of the former Soviet Union. Uh, I, I think the Lord has sent me here today not to talk about my ministry. Uh, in some ways, it is the fruit of uh, our family's ministry for the past 22 years. But it's not, it, it, God has t- done something in the Soviet Union that's far beyond my ministry. So... I'm not here today. I am here to tell you today war stories. That's true. You got to hear war stories. They're good for you. You need them. Uh, the guys will love them. Uh, but I'm not here today to talk about my ministry. Really, I think God wants me to uh, be an ambassador for the global body of Christ and get this part of the global body of Christ rightfully in, in a body relationship and a rightful brother sister relationship with the body of Christ that's about uh, nine time zones away, or at least. Let's see, uh, Emily Duff right now is about 10 time zones away, but our churches go another seven time zones that way and one more this way or two more, so we cover nine time zones over there. So I don't know what time zone exactly I'm talking about, but a big chunk of the earth, okay? So, uh, and I wanted to dedicate this sermon. Uh, today is the International Day for Prayer for the Persecuted Church, and I don't know if you all heard of Jeremiah Small, who was martyred for Christ in Kurdistan from Washington State, March 1st of this year. So I'm dedicating this sermon to him. I don't have time to go into the details of his life, but uh, you can look him up online, Jeremiah Small. And he illustrates, his life illustrates everything that uh, I'm talking about in this sermon. In January of 1991, I was invited to speak at the Soviet Union's, one of the 
Soviet Union's last Communist Party meetings, if you can imagine that. I shared my testimony and informed the audience that American believers wanted to help Russians have a better life through having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I told them that these Christians had sent me uh, to live in Leningrad, USSR, with my wife and three children, and three children, with a fourth on the way. He's now a senior at, senior at uh, Duke, <laughs> so he's grown up. We had three children before we moved to the USSR, and we had three children after we moved there. As you might expect, some of the party members in attendance smiled at me, fascinated that I should be there at all. I was the only Westerner they had heard of moving to Russia while that society was crumbling. Hundreds of thousands of Soviets were about to move to the United States. And uh, here, our family was moving in the opposite direction, so it did seem a bit weird at the time. Some of the party members were totally perplexed, and some grimaced at me. Uh, the most memorable response was one man. He looked at me. He was very sincere. And after I shared uh, Revelation 3.20, he said, you moved here for that? <laughs> he was perplexed. You know, why, why would somebody move across the world with their, with their family to talk about having a personal relationship with Christ and have forgiveness of your sins? You know, to him, it made no sense whatsoever. This meeting and a few others like it that we've experienced since moving to the Soviet Union in 1990, I believe illustrate the phenomenon that happened through the apostles in Acts 17, the passage we just read. Today, I would like to offer a running commentary between describing the events of this passage in Acts 17, the biblical realities that stand behind them, and what they have meant for us in our 22 years of ministry in Eurasia, and briefly, what they mean, what they should mean for the whole North American church in the 20th century. Observation number one, and uh, this is the first time I've used a computer to, I'm trying to become, uh, join the 20th century. Uh, not the 21st, trying to join the 20th century. Uh, so I've got this computer thing here, so if I have to pause it once while, it's because I don't know how to use it, but that's beside the point. Okay, observation number one. The gospel in Thessalonica was public and political, penultimate and perturbing. Four Ps. Acts 17, 1 through 10 describes the way in which God orchestrated the preaching of the gospel in a very special circumstance. The apostles were addressing a crowd made up of God-fearing Gentiles, believing Jews, and unbelieving Jews. In 17, well, they, you know, that, that, of course, happened as they preached. In Acts 17, 6 and 7, after the unbelieving Jews incited a, a mob to physically drag Jason in front of the people of the city and the authorities, jealous Jews accused Paul and Silas in absentia of turning the world upside down. The crowd and the authorities were greatly disturbed, to turn upside down in Greek is an uh, interesting word. It's anastaso, okay? Ana, we think of it as Anabaptist, so again to baptize, but it's actually, uh, this ana means up, and anastaso means set, okay? So to turn the world upside down is to anastaso the word. It's, it's, it kind of throw it up, and then it lands in a different way, and uh, the RSV translators figured it landed upside down, so they threw it up, and it landed upside down, okay? That's what they were accused of doing. In Acts 21:38, this same verse uh, means to cause an uproar, to commit sedition, treason, to lead a revolt. So even though we like to, you know, reform people like to pride themselves on the fact that we don't cause revolutions, we cause reformations, the unbelieving word perceives it and feels like it's a revolution. Okay, that, at least if you go to Acts 17, okay. So we can say we're just reformers, but they say, no, you're revolutionary, so whatever. So you can argue 
with somebody about that. It's a good, it's a good American should. The ESV renders uh, 17.8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed. To disturb in Greek is terasso. Uh, it's translated to stir up, to cause a great distress. The same Greek, Greek term is used for troubling waters like Pharaoh did in Ezekiel. Uh, these were Lenin's children, accountable to no one, susceptible to no twinges of conscience that I could possibly inspire. I was not dancing with them. I was not finessing them. I was trying to play their game of anger and intimidation, and they won every time in more ways than one. Uh, when I was in those situations, God was inviting me to dance the dance of the Holy Spirit with a sense of God-given humor, <clears throat> but I could not see it that way. I would not accept that this was a dance which God wanted me to, in which God wanted me to be treated absolutely without dignity, with no one to appeal to, to be helpless before conscienceless authorities, just like the 250 million Russian speakers of the former Soviet Union. The Holy Spirit was inviting me to dance the dance of humiliation, degradation, and self-control, and for at least 10 years I refused to dance that dance because I didn't think that's what I should do. About the time I got good at dancing the dance, uh, I no longer had to drive, so I never had the chance to be proud about all my humility. So it's, it's a very sad story. Why did we have to go through 10 years of chaos and misery of the 1990s in the Soviet Union and former Soviet Union? I, I did not understand this fully when I would read the passage 1 Corinthians 9, 22 through 27. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Before we went through the brutal 1990s, I thought this passage was talking primarily about drinking Russian cognac and not grimacing, because it was horrible. It was Soviet cognac. It was horrible stuff. And I didn't even drink at the time. I went over there. I thought that's what it was all about. Okay, I can drink Russian cognac and not grimace, you know, not grimace. And then they said to chase it with Soviet chocolate. The chocolate was worse than the cognac. Okay, I can do that. I can do that. Now I understand that unless Kathy and I and our six kids could live out the Christian life and at the same time be under more or less the same corrupt government and at the same time breathe the same deadly air that they were all breathing because of air pollution in the city, uh, then we didn't have much to share with the Russians. We had to walk with Christ and at the same time be harassed by the same obsequious drunks. The Davidsons have already been harassed twice by drunks. You can actually deal with drunks very quickly, but they didn't know that. Uh, I had to be, we had to be belittled by the same arrogant bureaucrats, live amid the same squalor, and our go- if our gospel was to be meaningful to the former Soviets. In 1 Thess 1.5, Paul said, For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The gospel cannot go out in full power if it is only in word. It must be incarnated. We had to raise our kids in Christ in homeschooling and parent-led co-op schooling and at the same time face the pressures of supporting the family and living in a downtown of of a city of 5 million people. Or everything we said would have been irrelevant. 
It took 10 years to earn the right to have much to say. You hear me? It took 10 years to have the right to have much to say. And, of course, the interesting thing was I had no idea what God was doing. I, he was just kind of hanging on. We kept saying every year, you know, one more, we can do one more year. People would say, when are you coming back? Well, we can do one more year, we think. <laughs> then, after 10, taking 10 years to form one church in St. Petersburg from the converts of our Navigator Collegiate Ministry from 1990 to 99, that 10 years, for the next 10 years, 99 to 2011, God saw fit through us to plant nine more churches across nine time zones in four countries. Two of the countries are Islamic. One of the men planting churches through our training is planting them in an Ill- illegally in a country where he could be captured or killed or imprisoned. And he comes and is trained by us. When our lives, when our lives had confirmed the gospel, our ministry expanded exponentially and not a minute before. Now we understand that one family that is a seed that falls into the earth and dies uh, morally in a new culture, John 12, 24, bears much more fruit than 20 short-term families that don't. We could have had 20 families rotating in and out, and it wouldn't have been the same. It would not have been the same at all. In fact, it probably would have just been a you know, big mess. <laughs> And it bears infinitely more long-term fruit than any celebrities that come over in fancy messages and meetings. And your brother, your pastor, one of your pastors and I were talking about this, about how Americans love celebrities that talk about how to take over the world, even though they've never been outside the United States. But anyway. Uh, Observation number five. Acts 17 is a crescendo on a trajectory. When the Jews said, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, they were also emphasizing that the message of the new king, Jesus, was above Caesar, a new master of all civilization, and that this message was on the loose, and that this message was rapidly moving and conquering, seeking to fill every moral, religious, and spiritual vacuum and void and exploit every opportunity. The word here in Greek is, in Acts 17, 6, is oikomene. It means living space. Oiko, where we get ecology from, a place of life. Mene is place, so a living place. So the, they've turned the living place upside down. It generally speaking meant the Greek world, the Roman Empire, and civilization as they knew it. The word itself implies a strategy. The Holy Spirit clearly led Paul to attack the civilized Greek and Roman centers of influence before they went to the uh, non-civilized world. What the rioters saw, what did they see when they said, those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. What did they see? What were they talking about? A month before in Philippi, I'm just guessing in these times, but approximately a month before, 75 miles away, there was a riot in Acts 16.22 and an earthquake and a prison broken open and many conversions. Six months before, 550 miles away in Lystra in 14.19 Acts, after a public riot, Paul had been stoned but made many disciples Uh, in the same city in Lystra. Two years before, 800 miles away in Acts 11, a great number of Greeks in Antioch had believed. If you compare Scripture with Scripture in Matthew 14, it comes up to about 20,000 people had come to to Christ in Antioch, mostly Greeks. Ten years before that, at Jerusalem, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, 3,000 and then 5,000 and other language of mass uh, mass conversions, probably about uh, 100,000 believers in Jerusalem, okay? We don't realize that. You know, that. That's a church. You know, we say the church 
When you say the church in Jerusalem, you're talking about uh, a big group of people. The jealous Jews in Thessalonica knew what had been happening in their whole world, that the message kept moving, and they understood that the message of Christ was still moving and overcoming. The outburst of popular unrest in Thessalonica is portrayed as a crescendo, in other words, a it, the, the momentum was gaining when they hit Thessalonica among a string of crescendos in which the reach and depth of impact of the mission uh, and a violent reaction to it was growing as the gospel went out. More importantly, this event was a key event on the trajectory that was taking Paul's team to greater and greater places of influence, ultimately to Rome, the capital of the Oikumene, and even probably to testify before uh, Nero Caesar himself, because that's whom he appealed to. At least Nero had him executed eventually. I don't know who was Caesar at this point in time. Time fails us to consider here in full, but let's think for a moment what was going on behind the scenes to make this event possible and keep the momentum of the gospel going. First of all, the Holy Spirit sent the best men of the church on the mission field. Paul humbly claims this in 1 Corinthians 15.10. He says, he's, you know, he works harder than them all. He says, now it's the grace of God in me, but I worked harder than all the other apostles. So number one, if you're going to do missions God's way, you send your best men. So all your elders have to leave, see? Isn't that great? <laughs> Second of all, the church followed the leading of the Holy Spirit by following up on laymen doing evangelism when they were scattered because of persecution. The leaders of the church seized opportunities immediately, and they sent Peter, John, and Barnabas to follow up on the open doors the Holy Spirit had already opened. Acts 8.14 and when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, not after deliberating for four or five years. They heard it, and they sent. They relied on their feet. See, you can go, I can tell you about wrestling later, but if you ever get on your heels in wrestling or football or basketball, you're cooked. You've got to be light on your feet, and you can keep your weight over your, your nose, over your toes. You know that, Hopefully. So they relied on their feet. They could make quick decisions. They knew what the Holy Spirit, they understood the language of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Acts 11.22, news of the great number of converts, probably 20,000 in Antioch, came to the ears of the church. So what did they do? They formed a committee. And they meditated on it. And they didn't want to make any mistakes. And then they formed another committee, right? Nope. And when, they, when the news came, Acts 11.22, to their ears, the whole church in Jerusalem, it's, of course the elders, sent Barnabas to Antioch. These men were fast movers, lighter on their feet like a good wrestler. And finally, they concentrated on exploiting one opportunity at a time with one missionary team and owning that mission long term. In Acts 13.3, Barnabas and Paul were sent to the Gentile world. In 14, when Barnabas and Paul returned, they gathered the church to report all that had happened, a church of 20,000 uh, in Antioch. When the mission had a need about the, the circumcision controversy, the broader church in Jerusalem stopped completely what it was doing in 15.3, and they rejoiced at the conversion of the Gentiles in 15.4. The, the Jerusalem elders and apostles uh, heard everything that had gone on in the mission. Then in Acts 15, the gatekeepers of Jerusalem church, Peter and James, made sure that the mission, as represented by Paul and Barnabas, was the one and only, uh, only point of business on the agenda for the first worldwide council, right? Acts 15. There was one, there was one point on the agenda, how to, get, how to get the gospel to the Gentile world. The purpose in Acts for Presbytery and General Assembly is to make sure that the global strategic opportunities for the advancement of the kingdom of God are met. 
You hear me? The purpose of Presbytery and world, what do we call them, General Assemblies, is to get the gospel to strategic places globally. When you finish that, whatever that part that needs to be done, then you can do other stuff. That's the book of Acts. You say, this radical came here and he told us we have to do things like the book of Acts. He's a troubler in Israel. Uh, I was a troubler in the Navigators and now I'm a troubler in the Reformed world. It's kind of fun, actually. Uh, after 28 years of traveling and preaching and sharing the ministry in North America, among the North American churches, I'm convinced of one thing. And that is this. And if you read the book of Acts, this is what you clearly see. You know, God brought a persecution in Jerusalem, and that's when they finally got the gospel out. They crushed the church in Jerusalem. Okay. So, and the church responded to what the laymen were already doing, preaching the gospel everywhere. See? So I'm convinced of one thing, that the Holy Spirit doesn't stop. That, that those church rulers, what would happen if the church rulers had said, no, we didn't give them permission to go preach the gospel. Those were just laymen. We didn't give them permission. You could say, well, some of them were sort of ordained. Okay, you know, I'm not going to have, I don't get into Presbyterian, uh, you know, little detailed things like that. Uh, what if they'd said, no, if you follow the, peri I, I got to Russia with the navigators. Now, why didn't I get to Russia with the Reformed churches or something? Why? Because the navigators in Campus Crusade were traveling secretly behind the Iron Curtain starting in 1970-75. What churches were traveling behind the Iron Curtain in 1970-75? What denominations were? I don't know of any. I've been around a long time. I don't know of any. So the Holy Spirit, I think, ra raises up uh, any kind of informal church thing like parachurch things, ministries, because the church just doesn't want to do it. It's, you know, the church loves to sit on their heels, you know. We fight like this. <laughs> That's how you get knocked out. I boxed, too. I got knocked out standing on my heels. <laughs> it's a good way to get hurt. <laughs> the Holy Spirit doesn't stop, you know? If you don't want to do what he wants to do, guess what? You eat his dust. He just says, bye-bye. No, no, we got this. We got this going. We got to be careful, you know? Okay, be careful. All right, you be careful, and I'm going to go work over here. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's why parachurch groups are usually first in, last out, so to speak. You know, it's true. So uh, we, we, the church needs to learn from them how to be light on their feet, how to be responsive, and how to be responsible for the Great Commission on the face of the earth. It's true. Now, they got a lot to learn from us. That's why I eventually left the parachurch ministry and got ordained uh, in the reform world, but uh, we have a lot to learn from them. It's interesting. God, uh, if you read this passage, the Jews were jealous. God often uses jealousy. We should be jealous of those ministries that, that are getting in to the rest of the world. We should be jealous of those things. We should be saying, how can we do that? Not, isn't it bad? Isn't it bad? Parachurch everywhere. Parachurch everywhere. That's just bad. We all know that. It's just bad. Right? That's what, that's what grumpy Reformed people say. <laughs> the gift of, gr of Reformed means you're, you're grumpy. That's what, that's what it means to be Reformed, is to be grumpy. About what the Holy Spirit's doing somewhere. You know, that just makes me mad. The Holy Spirit's working over there. That's just so bad. Okay. Observation number six. God turned the world upside down through men who had yielded to Christ, turning them upside down their whole lives. 
I already shared this about myself, but we need to see the historical fact in Acts uh, as well. Paul did call the world to turn upside down for Christ in Acts 17, but in Acts 9, he was first turned upside down morally and physically for the sake of the world, brutalized by God, blinded and knocked down to the ground, and so shocked, he sat three days in complete darkness and was not able to eat or drink. Try that. Try not being able to drink for three days because you're so shocked. God's training program to get us fit to make disciples of the nations and be witnesses for Christ to the ends of the earth is body and soul crushing, filled with overwhelming pain. Peter's is even more Acts 17-esque. In Acts 10:17, Peter is inwardly perplexed because three times he saw a sheep come down from heaven filled with tarantulas and gila monsters and puppy dogs, and God said, arise and eat. Now, what would you do? If you're Korean, maybe you could like that, you know. <laughs> they, they like puppy dogs, but. <laughs> he rightly did not take it as a promotion for the Gentiles, you know, as they were being raised up, but as a demotion for him, being told to basically, emotionally speaking, go out and eat slop with the pigs. Kind of like what the pastor said today about what God thinks of, of sinners, you know, how he describes sinners. And God did not let him off the hook, though he tried for years not to live out this horrible plan of God for his life culminating in Galatians 2, where he was publicly rebuked by Paul for his failure. God disturbed and upset and confounded the world with men that, had already, that he had already disturbed and confounded and upset, and who knew that he had the right and regularly exercised the right for their whole lives. They could only be vessels of turning the world upside down if God had the freedom in their lives to turn their lives upside down on an all-too-often basis. Dancing with linen and any other pagan system and people requires that we first experience as much of the pain, eat as much of the strange food, and pick it from as small a selection, smell as many of the stenches, see as much of the filth, breathe as much of the poison air as we can with Christ empowering us. I should add, because we have a, a, a Chinese family here, partially Chinese, that, and learn as many of the hard languages, which will... Make you cry, too, when you try to learn a language. Ask me about Russian later. It will make you think you're going to lose your mind when you try to learn another language fluently. And sometimes you do lose your mind <laughs> momentarily. This is what Paul means when he says in Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in the suffering in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. You and I must first learn to dance with linen before we can throw linen off the bus. You understand that? You must first learn to relate to the world and suffer with the world before you can win the world for Christ. And I'm afraid the reformed world in the United States, particularly the homeschooling, Christian schooling world in the United States, does not understand this at all. Observation number seven. Why does God tell ministers they are disqualified if they do not learn to dance with the linens of their world? 2 Corinthians 5:14 For the love of Christ controls us because we are convinced that one has died for all therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on therefore we regard no one from a human point of view even though we once regarded Christ from a human point of view. 
We regard him uh, that no longer, that way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The blood of Christ is that which actually transformed and transforms the world, thus turning it upside down. How? How does the blood of Christ transform the world? By making folks from all races, all socioeconomic layers of society, people of both genders, all religious backgrounds, languages, and all ages, before Christ and after Christ, a new creation in Christ. That's how he turns the world upside down. If you're not willing to do whatever it takes to win the respect of those for whom Christ died, then you are disqualified from being an elder in the church and a preacher of the gospel. The blood of Christ, and so when churches say, oh, we're just weak in evangelism. No, we're just weak in missions. No, 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 no. You're weak in understanding the blood of Christ. Revelation 5, he died for people from all races and languages and tongues. The blood of Christ should drive you and I to the lost of the world. And we get into, well, you know, but we believe in, what is it, limited atonement. Okay, God's limited atonement is so big, you've got to go everywhere. Yeah, it's limited, that's right. It, goes, it covers everything, you know, basically. So, it's very limited. And so, reformed, you know, reformed people love to let theology uh, hide, hide behind theology from God. That's a, that's a free sermon within a sermon. Uh, in ministry training, therefore, I remember in the 1970s, I was in Campus Crusade. I became a Christian, and what was the first thing he did with us? He didn't ask if we wanted to. They take you out witnessing. When you first come to Christ, you learn to witness. Bang. That's it. We were talking about that the other day. The navigators don't ask if you want to go witnessing. You just, we're going witnessing tonight. You know, I've already been in a church that takes people witnessing. It's incredible. I've been around homeschoolers. One of them that became a leader in the cadet corps at Texas A&M, where I graduated from, and he said, you know, I've been around this great Christian schooling. I've never shared Christ with an unbeliever. And now I'm a, in a position of leadership over 2,000 cadets. I've never shared Christ. I'm the chaplain of the cadet corps. I've never shared Christ with an unbeliever. Well, I think, you know, brother, you should have been in the Navigators or Campus Crusade when you were in high school. Then you would have learned to share Christ with an unbeliever. Now you wouldn't be so out of it, but he could make up for it. You, isn't it like the pe preacher said today, it's never too late. So I'm not trying to shame you into, you know, freezing in the headlights, you know. I'm trying to encourage you, it's never too late. And you can learn to share Christ. You, you know, and I'll just tell you one sermon within a sermon. My first <laughs> preaching opportunity, I was 15 or 16. We went to a mall, and I chose to speak to a large bearded man. I was, you know, I, I was as tall as I am now, but I was real skinny, and I looked 15 or 16. Why did I choose to speak to a large bearded man? I don't know. It didn't go so well, but I, I tried. <laughs> I'll tell you later how it went when the men are only, only the men are around. Okay. Uh, observation number eight. Dancing with linen is for kids. Our children's presence with us, I suppose, was the reason the Communist Party wanted me to speak. And the KGB agent who did an, event, an investigation of me in 1994 did not work to get us thrown out of the country. He told me it, that he had a file on us this thick, but he kept pointing to our children's pictures on the mantelpiece as he was interrogating me. Whose children are they? Whose children are they? Whose children are they? And he told me he knew I was a CIA agent, but then he kept looking at the children and confirming that they were ours. Then I know what was going on in his head. This is the dumbest CIA agent I've ever met. <laughs> so I think he didn't get us kicked out because he wanted to see how this dumb CIA project would, would pan out. And... Uh, 
So that's, that's probably what happened there. The kids were a vital part of our ministry and empowered our ministry a hundredfold. Uh, we have to ask ourselves in Acts 17, did Jason and all the persecuted church there have children? You think they had children? Or they were, just, they were all monks, they didn't have children. No, they all had children. In Acts 8, all the children were scattered. Numbers 14, 31, the unbelieving Jews in the wilderness excused their unbelief by asserting their fear that their children would die if they were to obey God's command to go in and take the promised land and have to fight. God's rebuttal was curt. But your little ones, whom you said would be a prey, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. God hates the idea of hiding behind our children to avoid taking the land for Christ. We have to understand Mark 10, 28, and 31 is written for the 21st century North American church. Christ said, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for the, my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Our call to follow Christ is inseparable from being willing to leave home, spouse, children, and safety. It also means we have to train our children to do the same by being with us and when and how we can do it, send them out wisely. Whatever you won't give up to follow Christ is by definition your idol. Rather than hiding our children from hardship for the sake of the gospel, we are called to lead our families into taking up their crosses and following Jesus. God wants to take our children into the promised land of conquest for the gospel. And if we complain and avoid it like the Israel did in the wilderness, he is more than ready. Do you hear me? God is more than ready to leave us behind. Mark 10, 31. But many that are first will be last and last first. Christ is more, I say this more than happy. It's kind of a, maybe too hard to say it. But Christ is willing to leave self-serving Americans to go to the end of the line in the kingdom and he has the right to leave them out of the kingdom altogether. All I just read a statistic and sent it out to some guys that uh, the American church spends 95% of its money on itself, on home missions and, and its you know, own bowling alleys or whatever, bowling alleys for Christ. We have to realize that God brought an end to the church in Jerusalem for the sake of of the glory of his son among the nations to turn the whole church into the missions into missionaries at the blink of an eye just as mark 1031 uh, God promises uh, and just as mark 1031 promised leaving all to follow Christ in 1990 to serve as ambassadors for God's irrational mercy to the 300 million Russian speakers in the world has been to my family our greatest privilege and blessing all of our children are not only walking with the Lord, but looking for opportunities to turn a small part of the world upside down for Christ where they live. They have all gone to the colleges of their choice and have done very well academically and socially. They have lived around the world in houses in Russia, France, Ireland, Scotland, Kazakhstan, Finland, Norway, Sweden, Germany, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Holland, England, Belarus, Ukraine, Hungary, Belgium, Turkey, Egypt, Denmark, and Afghanistan. Afghanistan was my son in the army. <laughs> But God gave him a house there. And they have gotten to see a good bit of the United States and Canada. God has proven true to Isaiah 58. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, 
Then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire with good things, and make your bones strong, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters fail not. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundation of many generations. Multi-generationalness, faith, uh, uh, blessing, is dependent on verse 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry of the world and satisfy the desires of the afflicted of the world, then God promises for multi-generations. And I'm afraid the homeschooling and reform world of the United States does not understand this promise at all. The ones I'm around, anyway. They don't believe that at all. They believe if you pour yourself out for homeschoolers that are just like you, that's when God will really bless, you know. I hate to say. I've, been, I've, only, been in a, I've only preached in 100 churches, though, in the United States, about 100. So maybe there are some churches that I haven't preached in that way. And there are, you know, I'm not saying the churches are bad. I'm just saying that they just don't understand that promise. If we risk everything for Jesus, God promises to give us faithful children and grandchildren. And then, really, next to the last, Hiro, Hiro, observation number nine, Acts is a book full of violent persecutions. And on this day of national prayer for the persecuted church, we need to remember that. Constant persecution and solid joys that overshadow every shade of darkness of that persecution, that that persecution brought, is what Acts is all about. Joy wins out in Acts. Acts 5, 40, 41, they called in the apostles and beat them. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Can you imagine being beaten? You know what they use? They use long sticks. You get beaten on your back and your, probably your rear and your legs maybe. Then you run out rejoicing. Wow. They, were count, they, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. This is what Acts 1, 8 means when it says, you shall be my witnesses, my martyrs, my martyrs. Paul in Acts 20, 24, KJV, effused, that I may finish my testimony with joy, that is, my martyrdom with joy. Isn't that amazing? I just had the high honor of spending two weeks in a meeting with, with you, one of your pastors, but also with Fikret Bocek of Smyrna, Turkey, a reformed church planner there and a former Muslim. Not only was he a great joy because he served in the Turkish army infantry, as, you know, all men... Not Turkish army, but getting to serve in the army is, of course, a great privilege. So we exchanged war stories, but he had been tortured for Christ 20 years ago when he first became a Christian. The book of Acts portrays recent converts and 1 Thess 1, 6 with these words. As those who receive the word with much affliction, with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, just as the Crete had. He said they jabbed his feet with electric shocks for four days until they turned black. That's when he first became a Christian. How'd you like that? Come to Christ, have his feet tortured. Uh, he said before they persecuted the 67 believers in a country of 70 million in Turkey, before they persecuted them, listen to this, before they persecuted those 67 million, those, those 67 men, there were only 67 people. After they persecuted them to this day, there's now 4,000. He said when they were persecuted for Christ, they lost their fear of persecution and they began to share the gospel freely. In the book of Acts, persecution is a blessing. Every time there's persecution, the church grows and it conquers because they receive it with joy. Ultimately, Acts portrays one kind of church that conquers the world and turns it upside down for good, the joyful martyr church. Anything less, and we are playing games with God. Observation 10 is my final observation. The dance is the purpose of God for our generation. 
When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Christ is playing music for us today that calls us to deny ourselves and learn to dance with and for the lost people and nations and languages and races of the world for Christ's sake. If we ignore his music, see, Christ said he was like, he was like a child. His ministry was like a child playing a flute, and no one would dance to it, a happy song. Then he played a dirge, and no one would dance to it, see. So in a sense, Christ calls his whole ministry playing music, and he's playing music for us today. If we ignore this music and refuse to dance or half-hearted or seek to save ourselves from this dance, we reject the purpose of God for our generation. Do you believe that? We're the wealthiest church in the history of the world. We are the wealthiest church in the history of the world. We have more resources by far than any church in the history of the world. To whom much has been given, of him will much be required. So if we believe that, we will be champions for Christ's sake, and we will uh, turn the world upside down for Christ, and, uh, and we will be blessed, and there will be great joy with persecutions. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.